Okay, we are reading in uh, Luke chapter 13, reading from verse 31. Luke 13, 31. And we are continuing along the chronological life of Jesus. And we are in the last couple of months, maybe even the last month now. Hard to know precisely, but we're coming into the, the last month or so. So Luke chapter 13, now, now you may say, well, we still have a long way to go, and we do, because remember, we're, we're in Luke chapter 13, but Luke has, has another, we're only halfway through the gospel according to Luke, and this is the chronological life of Jesus, and I say we only have a month, maybe two months left of his life, but that's where, where the gospels really focus, many of them, and particularly Luke's gospel is this last portion of his life. And, and, and uh, uh, a lot of John as well. So you see in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, it says, Just at that time, some Pharisees approached him, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants, you, wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow, and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So, remember where Jesus is at this time. It says that he had gone to Perea on the east of the Jordan River. So, he has gone beyond Jericho, past the Jordan. Remember, we read how it says that Jesus went to the place where John was first baptizing. And John, having a very effective ministry... It says that when he went there and he was going from village to village in the area in which John was first baptizing, many were coming to know the Lord because the promise in John's baptism was that I baptize you and you will receive anybody, the, you will receive the person that I point out as Messiah, you will receive as Messiah. So those who had received the baptism of John, their hearts were prepared. They immediately believed when they met, met up with Jesus or with his apostles. But here we are in verse 31. It says, At that time some Pharisees approached him, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now this is Herod the Tetrarch, not, not, uh, not King Herod. Uh, King Herod had died. He was in place when Jesus was first born. Jesus was brought to Egypt Her- when Herod uh, uh, was killing the, the babies. And, and then he came back after the death of King Herod. This is Herod's son, Herod, King Herod's son is now Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas is his name, and he still controls this region, even though Jesus is on the east side of the Jordan in Perea, still Herod the Tetrarch is in control of this area. So the Pharisees come, the Pharisees coming from Jerusalem come down past the Jordan and they say, hey, get on out of here because Herod wants to kill you. Well, isn't it convenient for them? They all of a sudden care about Jesus' life. Why should this be? Because they want him to go back onto the east side of the Jordan so that he's also under the authority then of the Sanhedrin and they could plan his destruction. So even their warning of him was self-centered because they wanted him to come back under their control as well so that they could start instigating his destruction. So Jesus' reply to them is, he said to them, go and tell that fox. This is how he refers to Herod Antipas. He refers to him as a fox. Now, does Jesus ever offend people? 
all the time. Was Jesus that worried about offending people? Apparently not. Now, I don't know if... It's hard to know what fox meant in their culture because uh, uh, when we use analogies of animals, that that varies from culture to culture. Uh, so, So I know, for example, in American culture, we don't think a lot of snakes. But you go into some Asian cultures and, I don't know, snakes might be wise or something. And, and uh, uh, I know that uh, in American culture we think that owls are wise, right? Owls are wise. But in Shireen's culture, um, owls are considered stupid. And, and so even they have an expression, ulu, ulu kakan, you, you owl, because they say owls just, owls just uh, 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 sit there and don't do anything. And so, so when somebody just kind of sits there and doesn't do anything, you call them an owl, an ulu. And uh, so it varies from culture to culture. So because he calls him a fox, may well have not meant, oh, that sly person. It may have meant something else. We don't exactly know what the analogy was because between different cultures, uh, 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 the description of, of animals varies, the, the analogies. He says, but go tell him, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. So he says, I'm casting out demons and I'm performing cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Well, we know that Jesus' goal is to die on the cross and to be raised from the dead. And then he goes on, he says, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So is Jesus saying in three days is going to come the crucifixion and then followed by the resurrection? Because he says, today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. Well, we know that that cannot be because we have a complete description of the last week of Jesus' life. And, and in the Gospels. So we're not even into the last week of Jesus' life. The last week of his life is totally in Jerusalem. Here he is down in Perea. Well, why is he saying today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal? He's speaking prophetically. But this is another example, and there are many of them in the Scriptures, where it's spoken of a day, today, tomorrow, the next day when he doesn't mean the actual physical 24-hour day. When you say, no, a day is a day, and that's it. Well, then you have a whole lot to deal with here. Because there's a whole lot that's going to have to take place, and we know that, that we have several preceding days following up to his resurrection. So what I want to get across is here, if we say that this is an actual 24-hour day in this context, it just doesn't fit with what we know about the rest of his life. He is speaking, when it says, this is the day of the Lord. Okay, that was the day of the Lord that he said it, so the day of the Lord never continues on. You you see what I mean? He might mean a generation. But we see that here today, and he's speaking prophetically. He gives a hint of what's going to happen prophetically. And then in verse 34, let's pick it up in verse 34 of Luke chapter 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's saying to them, he's saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. They had wanted him to cross back over, and he's speaking. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. He says, I often wanted to gather you, just like a hen gathers her chicks, gathers her brood, but you wouldn't have it. And then he says, your houses will be left you desolate. He's speaking about the 70 AD judgment that's to come. Your homes are going to be left desolate. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And he says, and you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'll pick back up on this later on. That's exactly the way Jesus leaves. He says that the, the Jewish nation, once he leaves, will not see him return again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is clear in Scripture, his second coming is only going to be let up, it's going to happen after the tribulation. His second coming is going to happen because the Jews as a nation are going to be able to are going to welcome him back and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Individuals from the Jewish nation are saved all the time. But as a nation, they're not going to see his return until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As a nation, welcoming him back. And that's how we know that his second coming is not coming today. Because the Jews as a nation are not welcoming him back. The rapture may come at any time. Anytime. We have no idea when that's going to come. But the second coming of Christ will not come until they welcome him back again. And that is after, halfway through the tribulation, what's going to happen is there's going to be an abomination of desolations and the Jewish nation will start to turn. When they welcome him back, he will return. And so this is again speaking prophetically, but it has analogies in our life today. So what we do is we look at the scriptures and we say, what was the context in which he was speaking this? And now, how does it apply to my life? Look what he says. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. He does not say, oh, that wonderful city with the lights and the temple and, and, and all the glorious things and, and, and where the covenant was given and where Moses was offering up Isaac. And, and uh, it, it does, he doesn't say that. Here is how he characterizes Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her, her brood under her wings and you would not have it. So in other words, he's saying, this rebellious city, I wanted to gather you. This rebellious city is the city that I wanted to gather. Not only are you rebellious, you killed the prophets that my father sent to you. You killed the prophets and you stoned those who were sent to you. You killed them with stones. You treated them as if they were false prophets. It's you that I want to gather. Think about our own lives. God doesn't turn and say, Oh, all the righteous ones, come unto me. Or else, none of us would be able to come. He takes us in our state of sin. And He welcomes us. And He says, come unto me. 
he doesn't whitewash this thing. He says, Jerusalem, you are the ones who killed all the prophets who were sent to you. But I wanted to gather you in just like a hen gathers her brood. So you see, you see, even in this, the picture of God sometimes comes in the Scripture. The picture of God comes in the form of a man. Sometimes the picture of God comes in the form of a woman. In other words, of a hen wanting to gather her flock. The picture of God in Isaiah is that as a, a, a mother nurses her child, it's how I've wanted to nurse you, O Jerusalem, O Israel. How I've wanted to reach out to you. Because in God, there is no male and female in God. Sometimes God will display His affections toward us in the form of a man, sometimes in the form of a woman. Here He does in the form of a, 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 a hen gathering her brood. He says, this is how I've wanted to do this. In the state where you are is where God calls you. God does not call us in a state of righteousness because none of us are in that state. If you think that you are righteous and you are worthy and boy, if God gets you, He'd really be getting something good. You're wrong. He defines Jerusalem as one who kills the prophets. This is us. This is us. This is our state. We have a rebellious state. Think about this. Think about your own life. Outbursts of anger. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from God. Are you unable to control your anger? Are you unable to control getting angry and getting bitter? If something, somebody does something to you and you just, you know, you thought, I, I wish they were dead. Boy, I'd like to just crush them. Now, how do I know so much about this? Because I know what I'm like. You think, oh, this doesn't happen to you. Oh, yes, it does. Were it not for God in my life to say, what am I thinking of? Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. You love them. When you see these tendencies in your life, when you see this tendency to cheat or to lie or to want to destroy your brother or your sister, just remember where you are from, remember, you're not in the righteous state that you think you are. That in only coming to Jesus is there salvation. And once you come, there is victory over these things. Not that those feelings don't arise, but there is victory over them. There is victory over the outbursts. There is victory over the tendencies to want to kill your brother or your sister. So that you can look at them in a new light where you come to God and say, Father, forgive me. Work in my life. Work a change. And He does. And He does. And Christian life is a process in getting more and more like Christ. But it starts with salvation. And then He says, Behold, He says, um, I, I wanted to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings to protect you. I wanted so much to protect you, O Jerusalem, He says. But you would not have it but you would not have it. So do you, don't you see that God never forces Himself upon us? Never does He force Himself upon us. I wanted to gather you, Jerusalem, but you wouldn't have it. Isn't God stronger than Jerusalem? Couldn't He have gathered them anyway? Yes, He could have. Couldn't He have protected them anyway? 
from this onslaught that's about to come in 70 AD? Sure, he could have. But it was their choice to rebel from him. And God never supersedes our freedom to choose or to decline. Jesus comes to you and he says, I want to have a relationship with you. He says, but you wouldn't have it. You didn't want it. That's it. He doesn't force himself upon us. But what he does is he calls us to come to him. Again and again he calls us. Today is the day of salvation. If you are hearing this and you've not given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus today. Don't be like them and not have his turning to you. Not, not have your turning to him as he's, as he's opening up his heart. In verse 35, Behold, your house has left you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The outcome of not coming to Jesus is that your house will be left to you desolate. This is the outcome. There is a price to pay when we don't open up our hearts to Him. Our house is left to us desolate. This happens figuratively. It happens literally in the sense that when you don't receive the Lord, if you think, well, you know, I'll I'll receive the Lord some other time. Or, as happens to believers very often, it's okay, I believe, but I'm not sure I really want to plug in, you know. I don't really want to be fanatical, you know. Which, which is a way of trying to characterize, well, I just don't really want to press in and start obeying God. And what happens is, you end up choosing the wrong spouse because you don't see from his perspective. You just see someone pretty or someone handsome and you don't understand from his perspective. And then a few years into marriage, you see, this is not quite what I thought it was. And your home becomes desolate. And your children start rebelling. And all of this happens. And first you have a little baby and they're compliant and everything. But there comes a time when things start falling apart. The home is left to you desolate. Things in life start to fall apart. Anytime we start to shun the things of Jesus, life starts to fall apart. You will see your career start falling apart, your job, your home life. What you do is you... Let Jesus put his arms around you and you start pressing into him. This is what life is for the believer. For the unbeliever, the first step in all of this is coming to him, receiving him in your heart. Jesus, look look what he's saying. He says, I wanted, I longed, I longed just to gather you. It's like he takes his hands and he puts them on, on our cheeks. And he's saying, don't you know? Don't you know? what I was trying to do in your life. In your unrighteous state, in all your failures, still, I want you. I want you. You don't wait for yourself to be all cleaned up to come to Jesus. You don't wait for that point because it will never happen. He's saying, I want you in the state that you're in. I want you. And then once we come in, it is a process of walking with Him. Okay, let's turn to Luke chapter 14, verse 1. The next thing in the passage. And it happened, he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, and they were watching him closely. 
So remember, Luke, it says in the beginning that it was written chronologically. It, Luke is the only gospel that is chronological. It's not just following along a theme, it's following chronologically, where the other gospels are following along themes and they jump around. Here, so the next thing that we have in his life is he is now in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. So there's a good chance now at this point when the story picks up that he has gone back into Jerusalem. Because he's not just one of the Pharisees, this is one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Which means that he might have been the president or the leader of a rabbinic school. So this is a pretty important dinner invitation. They invite him in. Now he'd been in the homes of Pharisees before, we've read about that. And it says he happened, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. So they, on the Sabbath day, usually on Saturday, so the Sabbath starts Friday sundown, and they, they will have a, a, a gathering together on the Sabbath, on Friday sundown, and you do that, and then they'll often go to the uh, Saturday morning, they'll often go to the synagogue, and then after that, they'll get together very often and have a, another meal. But Friday night is a big meal, and there's also a, a, a meal that they'll have on Saturdays, too, together. And so it's either on a Friday night, or it's on a Saturday before sundown, and he's in this Pharisee's house, but you see here, the motive here is not simple. The motive wasn't, oh, let's just invite in this holy man into our home and just bless him. No, it says they were watching him closely, and they had set something up to catch him. And what they had set up in verse 2, and there was, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Dropsy sometimes called today hydropsy. It's, it's the swelling of the limbs. And, and so it's obvious. It's not like, oh, the man had a bad back and nobody could see it. Dropsy or hydropsy, you see it. It's clearly evident. The limbs are just swelled up, puffed up. And uh, so if Jesus was going to heal him, there would be immediate notice of it. So it, it, it's not like, oh yeah, my back was hurting and now it's better. No, it's It's something that's obvious to all. So they put somebody in front of him that was suffering from dropsy. Now, they couldn't put a leper in front of him or else it would have defiled the home of this Pharisee. So it was very well calculated what they're going to put. And it just happened to be right in front of where Jesus was. So all the other Pharisees are watching him. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Now, the lawyers, remember, are are the experts in in the Mosaic law. This is in the law of Moses. The lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and he healed him and he sent him away. So he asks them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And it was not against the law of Moses to heal on the Sabbath. And by the Pharisees' law, you could heal only on the Sabbath if it were a matter of life and death. If the sickness could wait till tomorrow, you have to wait. Remember, Jesus had disdain for, for the Pharisaic, Pharisaic, Pharisaic law. And, and in fact, he considered it contemptible because he would go out of his way not to obey it. But as far as the law of Moses, remember the lawyers were there. They were experts in the Mosaic law. They couldn't answer him. There's no prohibition to healing on the Sabbath. Nowhere does it say. So he heals the man. Then he says in verse 5, And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son 
or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. So they didn't answer him because according to the law of Moses, there was no prohibition. And then he says, which one of you has a son fall into a well? You're going to pull him out on the Sabbath day? Even by your own law, it says, you should wait till the next day before you do an act of good. He says, okay, if your son fell into a well today, and he might be able to survive till tomorrow, would you wait till tomorrow, or would you pull him out? I mean, really, the obvious here. And not just your son, what about an ox? Are you going to pull him out or not? You'd pull him out that very day. How much more do you do this, as Jesus referred to once for, for the lady who was healed, this daughter of Abraham, this child of Abraham? They could make no reply. Now in verse 7, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. So here he is, a guest in this home, and he starts addressing all the invited guests. So all the Pharisees and all the people who were there, he starts, he starts uh, telling this parable. When he, he started speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and to, he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes and he says to you, Friend, move up higher, then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This was a teachable moment. The Pharisees are coming and choosing the, you know, coming and choosing the front seats. And so Jesus says, okay, this is not what you should be doing. Because someone more distinguished than you might have been invited, and you might be asked to move out of your seat. Then by that time, all the other seats are taken too, and you're going to be sitting out way in the back. You're going to be embarrassed. He says, don't take the seat of honor. Look at all the beautiful teachings that Jesus gives us. And then he says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Who exalts himself will be humbled. You exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. You humble yourself, you'll be exalted. I mean, we need more people doing dishes on, on Sunday mornings in the kitchen. Shireen texted me this morning. If you think doing dishes is below you, you're wrong. It's not below you. In fact, it may be above you. But we need people to do dishes. We need help. When you lower yourself to do things in the world's eyes, to bend down and pick up some trash, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. It works very well on your job too. If you're in your job and you do things that some might think is below them, below somebody of your stature, your bosses will see it and bring you up. When you humble yourself, you will be exalted. That is the word that he gives to us. In verse 12, And he also went out and said to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your payment. 
But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Isn't that interesting? Here he is in another guy's house. And this guy's invited all these Pharisees, his buddies, to keep an eye on Jesus. And they invite Jesus and his disciples in. And he gives them a lesson on how to sit. And he gives them... And, and you think, well, you know, isn't this kind of bold of Jesus? Yeah, it might be, other than the fact that he's God. So, so uh, uh, I think God is allowed to do this, no matter whose home he's in. And then, and then he says, when you give a feast like this, if you just invite in your friends and your family, they're going to invite you back and you're going to be repaid. He says, but when you have a feast, this is what you ought to do. He says that, that uh, you should invite in the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Look at what he says. And this is what the church ultimately ended up doing so that within 200 years the church was going to be the biggest organized religion on earth. Within 200 years of this time. Because the church got very good at doing that type of thing. And when you start inviting in people who cannot repay you, people that don't have the means to repay you, look at what it says. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Whoa! Repayment is coming at the resurrection of the righteous. The resurrection of the righteous will occur when those who are in Christ shall rise. At the rapture, you will be repaid. This is the promise. When This principle was taught to me when I was a young believer your age. This principle was taught to me when I was an undergraduate. When I went to graduate school my first year, I was not married my first year, and I lived in the graduate dormitory, and I used to invite guys. I didn't have... I, there, there were no microwaves even in those days. That was before microwave ovens. So it's not like you could have a microwave. And, and, and the, the, the burner units were not allowed in, in, the, in the graduate dormitory rooms. And so all we could have was a coffee pot or a pot for hot water. And, and so I used to invite guys into my room. Guys on the floor, I'd invite them in my room, and I'd serve them hot chocolate and chocolate. This is what I serve them. And, and everybody loves chocolate, right? And then in wintertime, everybody loves hot chocolate, right? And so you used to invite them in. That's all I had. But I invited them in. So it's not like you have to have a grand home. I mean, they really liked it. And I remember having these Arab guys into my room, and we talk, and, and I'd become friends with them. And these particularly were not Christians, but just guys on the floor. I wanted to learn how to extend this blessing. Yeah, I'm accruing up for the day of the resurrection of the righteous. But in the process, I'm making friends. And then, the, the, after my first year of graduate school, we got married. Shuri and I got married. And uh, as soon as we got our home, we started inviting people in. And I would go back to the graduate dorm. And these guys that I'd met, I'd start inviting over them over to my little graduate department. So we had an apartment in, in graduate housing. It wasn't anything fancy. But Shireen knew how to make a fancy meal. And we'd invite people in. And, and we'd serve them much, something much more substantive than, than, than chocolate and hot chocolate. And, uh, uh, but we started having people in. When you do this, you will be rewarded. This is what it says. Invite those who cannot pay you back. 
Invite those who cannot do this. This is what He encourages us to do. For the believer, this is an obligation as a believer if you want to walk with God. If you don't want to walk with God, fine. You do whatever you want. But you want to walk with God? You are obliged to show hospitality. It is an obligation to show hospitality. Because this is what Jesus commands us to do. What He commands us to do, we are obliged to do, or else we are rebellious. And we should fall on our knees and say, God, help me a sinner. You are obliged to extend this to others. Not that they're going to pay you back. In fact, if they pay you back, I don't want to be invited to anybody's home. I, want to, I don't want to be paid back. I want to save it up for the resurrection of the righteous. This is what you're obliged to do. So if you think that one day when I have a big house and I'm able to have this thing catered or all this, then I'll do it. Wrong. You do it now. He calls us to extend beyond where we're normally comfortable. Beyond where we are normally comfortable. This is what he calls us to do. And he says, and, and, and I just read this week about this one pastor. How he, he dressed up like a, a homeless man. And he had a professional uh, um, makeup artist just really make his face look beaten up. And he had a hat on and a coat on, all ragged. And he was hanging out side in front of his church on Sunday morning. And people were coming and they wouldn't even make eye contact with him. You know how it is. And, and, and they're wondering. And then he wanders into the church and you know, some guys walk up and, and, and talk to him, but most did not. A few gave him some money, but most wouldn't even make contact. And children would kind of look and then look to their parents. Is, is, is it okay that he's here? And then during the service, this homeless man who's just kind of wandering around in this church walks up onto the stage and the only person who knew was his associate pastor and pulls off the makeup. This was the pastor. I mean, isn't that a great lesson? And it is not so much that what was your response toward him, it is what is your response going to be now in the future toward others who are lame and crippled and blind and are not quite like us. What now is going to be our response toward them? Very interesting what this pastor had done. Very interesting to show us, are we going to do this? This is who he says, Jesus says, invite these into your home. You say, well, I don't know. They might, they might rob me. Well, they might. So what? It'll teach you not to keep too many precious things around. Not to be so materialistic. All right, maybe they will rob you. Maybe you'll lose a few things. Okay, so what? It's just, just things that are passing away anyway. Invite those in. Invite them in. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercies, for the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, for what Jesus demonstrated. Father, I pray that if there be those here that do not know you, that they would this day say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. That they would not shun you as you try to embrace them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood beneath her wings. But you would not have it. 
Father, I pray that their hearts would be open this day and that they would invite you into their lives as you have extended your hand to them. And Father, for the believers here that have closed their hearts from walking in the way that you have for them, Father, I pray that their hearts would be opened. And Lord, I pray that you would take the believers here that want to walk with you and you would teach them to follow in the paths of Jesus by opening up their homes, their rooms, the rooms in their dormitories and their apartments and their colleges to those who could not invite them back or don't have the means to invite them back in return. Father, that they would learn to open up their homes in that way. And Father, that through that, they would start a pattern in their lives of giving, of selfless giving. Father, do that work in their lives, I pray. Lord, I pray that through the Word of God, we would so change. In the name of Jesus, Amen.